Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Almost two years ago now, in March of 2016, John Podesta had his email account hacked. Podesta at the time was the chairman of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, and the hackers used a classic trick, telling Podesta he had to update his password. When he did that, he put tens of thousands of emails in the hands of hackers. But at the time, March of 2016, Podesta had no idea that he'd been hacked. A few weeks later, a man who was advising then-candidate Donald Trump's campaign learned that Russia had gotten thousands of emails that would reflect badly on Hillary Clinton. Those emails would not be released to the public for months. But the Trump advisor, George Papadopoulos, has pled guilty to lying to the FBI, and he's cooperating with special counsel Robert Mueller. Now on the brink of another season of primaries and elections, there's a looming question. Will Russia get involved with and maybe even try to change the outcome of the 2018 elections. I would argue that they're already involved and that their activities really didn't stop. P.W. Singer has testified on Russian hacking before the House of Representatives. He's a senior fellow at the New America Think Tank and the author of Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know. And he says there's two components of the Russian strategy— First, the hacking and stealing of information, like what happened to John Podesta. And Singer says that's going on right now. There's been reporting in the last few weeks that Russia is trying to hack into senators' computers. But then there's the second part that was arguably more influential on the election itself, which is what we call the influence operations. So not trying to merely hack someone's account, but to hack the conversation, so to speak. So this is the whole aspect of um, social media operations where you have someone in Russia that's posing as if there's someone in the United States that's trusted. So the examples that have been proven uh, range from someone trying to appear as if they're a Tea Party organizer to someone trying to appear if they're a U.S. Army veteran, uh, someone trying to appear as if they're a... um, African-American activist, you name it, and then using that posing to try and change what people believe, change the conversations online. But here's the thing. Singer argues that the Russians do not see the world the same way we do. They're not Democrats. They're not Republicans. They're Russians. And they're not cheerleaders for a particular party or ideology. They are cheerleaders for chaos. So in the United States, when we think about propaganda, it's um, I'm going to try and message so that you love me, that you, you, you like me or you like my candidate. Whereas going back to Soviet Union days, and they literally invented the concept of disinformation campaigns, it's not about making you like them or even like certain types of candidates. It's instead about trying to cause distrust, disarray, to divide the opposition. And so, for example, one of the things that's been hard for people to understand, but again, there's a pattern of this going back to the Cold War, is that they'll reach out to try and influence and lift up both the extreme right and the extreme left because they see the center as the target that they want to go after. In 2016, the centrist that they weren't a fan of was named Hillary Clinton. And when their efforts appeared to be fruitful in the U.S., Russian influencers descended on other countries like France, like Norway. And Singer says the goal for 2018, 
is pretty clear. The goal is to cause Americans to distrust everything in their own politics and media to basically divide and conquer. The classic Russian technique for doing this is to get a little help from some friends. And in espionage terms, sometimes they are what we think of as um, fellow travelers, people who share those beliefs, and other times they're what uh, translates from Russian as useful idiots. And the difference between the Cold War and today is that we've seen these fellow travelers, these useful idiots, not just become empowered through social media and by certain media organizations, but they're also being highlighted. They're being given platforms and voices. So you'll see things where there's like conspiracy theorists, you know, like the guy behind Pizzagate, who's then being retweeted by the most influential social media um, account out there in the world, the president of the United States. So how has the strategy worked? Singer is pretty unequivocal. That strategy is paid off in gangbusters for Russia. Which, when it comes to 2018 and the increasing targeting of individual state and district races, that may be the real problem. What worries me is not just that Russia is doing this, not just that they got away with it, but how every other actor out there is looking at it and saying, huh, this was incredibly cheap for them to pull off highly successful, almost no discernible punishment. Mm -hmm. So this is no pain, all gain. I could do this too. So you're saying our reaction to what happened in 2016 has some bearing on whether it will happen again in 2018 because the Russians were like, this, uh, you know, this didn't seem to cause us, as you said, a lot of pain. Instead of causing deterrence, we've created incentives for Russia to do it again in more ways, but also to target other nations in more ways. So, for example, the president's own national security advisor said recently they've seen attempts at this um, targeting Mexican elections, mm -hmm. but also other actors out there, be they other states to non-state actors all the way down to individuals. Some billionaire are looking at this and going, hold it. This was really cheap what the Russians pulled off. We could do this, too. Mm. And so the future is actually you may see more of these where it's actually going to be hard to figure out who the heck is trying to do it and what are they after? Right, right. Is it Russia going after a certain um, congressman because they don't like their stance on Ukraine? Mm -hmm. Or is it some billionaire going after them because, you know, they really believe in some single issue like tax policy? Mm -hmm. OK, so let me ask about our capabilities on this front, because you've said that while we've spent an awful lot of time building up a very impressive physical military with physical tools, Russia has just invested tremendously in this cyber capacity. Have we? Are we, are we in any position to fend off, it sounds like, a lot of incoming uh, that, that's, you know, headed our way? So there's capability and then there's will. Okay. So there's what you can do, and then there's your willingness to do it. And that's where other actors, particularly Russia, look at the United States and say, 
Yeah, you've got some really great capability. Offensive cyber, the National Security Agency, they have a lot to be mad at Edward Snowden. But the one thing that he did reveal is that they have incredible offensive cyber capability. Hmm. But it doesn't matter if it's not utilized in terms of a manner that causes deterrence. Or if you look outside of the cyber realm, are other tools of national power. So, you know, isn't it striking that we've been bullied about by the 13th largest economy in the world and falling? So have we utilized those other tools of power? And this is where there's been this, you know, real, um, uh, I'm trying to be very um, choosy with my words here, um, problematic stance by the Trump administration that even the Republican Congress has been, Mm -hmm. hold it, you know, you were supposed to implement sanctions and we're not seeing them. So if you're not going to do it, we're going to push harder. And one of the key areas of understanding the change in the environment is not just how Russia has gotten away with this, but also how the technology itself is changing. And we have particularly new areas like artificial intelligence that don't just shift what you can do in areas like uh, these online influence operations where, you know, an AI can um, pose as a human, an AI can maybe even literally create fake video and the like, Mm. but also it's this bigger area of strategic competition where, you know, China may well be pushing ahead of the United States in the game-changing technology of the future. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Peter Singer, the author of Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know. He has served in the office of the Secretary of Defense and is a strategist at the New America Think Tank. So let's talk about what Russia can do in 2018. Do you think, for example, they can change vote totals. This is an area that's in dispute among uh, cybersecurity um, professionals. Okay. Uh, and so you know, we know that there have been forays into um, voter databases. Which is uh, very important, right? Because, I mean, now obviously if you do show up to vote and you're unexpectedly not on the rolls, you could cast a provisional ballot um, and your vote could be counted later if it was determined, yes, you were indeed registered to vote. But it seems very scary and not good at all to think that a foreign power might be trying to fiddle with the roles. Exactly. And so that's where you hear people, you know, say things like they can't hack the machine. That's there's an argument back and forth on that. But why would you need to hack the machine if I can hack the conversation or hack the mind or hack trust in the outcome or hack uh, the um, ability of someone to show up to vote. Uh, So, you know, when I think about the conversation that we've had around election cybersecurity, you know, we've tended to look in the wrong places and and have the wrong kind of debates. Well, so do you do you personally worry either about vote totals or about this idea of obviously every state's got a list of people who can vote and that will continue on up until the deadline where people can not register to vote any longer uh, for the November elections? Uh, do you worry about either uh, Russians getting into the lists of people who are able to show up and vote and changing those lists around somehow or or changing the ultimate outcome. Oh, the vote wasn't 10,000 to 20,000. It was 10,000 to 15,000 or whatever. Look, I'm a security guy, so I worry about everything. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But maybe what worries me the most is that even if that happened, who would we trust now 
mm-hmm. who would we believe mm-hmm. in terms of reporting right. that it happened? Right. Uh, and this is where you have the combination of the attacks from the outside on our institutions. And this is where, you know, mm-hmm. clearly this has been a goal by Russia, but also the attacks on the inside mm-hmm. on these institutions of America. So causing distrust of the judicial system, causing distrust of law enforcement like the FBI, causing distrust of any and all media. It's fake news defined as, well, it's news I don't like as opposed to not being real. And, you know, this is the real problem I see it for us as a nation right now is when and if something like that happened, we wouldn't be able to even talk about it, um, argue about it. Yeah, agree on what happened. Yeah. Yeah, And and that's, you know, that's incredible. And so you can't even get to what to do about it if you're stuck within this like morass of, well, I don't have to believe you because I don't like you or um, this institution, uh, you know, that's um, supposed to be uh, not involved in partisan politics. Well, because it did something I don't like, it's therefore involved. I mean, we all know what we're talking about here. And so this is a problem of both external attack on our institutions, but also this problem of people who have decided that it's in their interests to hollow them out from the inside. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, spotlight on Facebook, on Twitter as well. Are uh, social media platforms any more ready for what you kind of talked about as like the hacking of the mind um, in 2018 than they were in 2016? I think they are. They're not in a great place. But really what's happened is we've seen these companies and more particularly the individuals at the head of them go through really the the stages of grief. So, you know, they they went from denying that this was even a a problem. Uh, You know, so Mark Zuckerberg in the days after the election, you know, famously said it was a a pretty crazy idea was his quote that this could have happened and this could have had an influence. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, there's, you know, again, you're going through the stages of denial and then there's, you know, angry retort. There's there's bargaining. Well, I I did this, you know, and then uh, and so they've been under pressure to both reveal more and the more people have dug, the more we've found, you know, for example, there was a suspicion that there were a large number of these fake accounts that were really Russian actors to, wow, um, it didn't, they weren't measured in the hundreds, they were measured in the tens of thousands, or the example of, um, the ads, oh, there was just a couple of ads. They weren't that big mm-hmm. a deal to, wow, actually they were seen by millions upon millions mm-hmm. of people. And so we've seen them go through that. In turn, the focus of their cybersecurity efforts has shifted. So their cybersecurity teams initially were just looking at how do we keep people from cracking into our networks Whereas now they've been looking more at how do we keep people from shaping the conversation on our networks, posing as someone that they're not. So this influence campaign side. And you can see a real difference between how both the U.S. government and the tech companies handled the threats to the American election in 2016 versus how they were handled 
in the later French election, Mm -hmm. where everything from French intelligence was going after this problem to the French political parties were doing interesting things like, okay, you're going to try and steal our emails? Well, we're going to put a bunch of fake emails in there so that you have to sift through the good and the bad Mm -hmm. to the tech companies went from not knocking anyone offline, or sorry, I should be clear, incredibly low numbers of people measured in the hundreds of fake accounts Mm -hmm. to before the French election, I believe the number was over 50,000. Now, it wasn't that Russia cared, you know, those multiple times more about the French election. Mm -hmm. It was that we'd shifted in our response. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you like, you, you think that the French response, which was a combination of public and private, was all these institutions getting together, looking at what had happened in the U.S. and saying, no, this is not going to happen here in our presidential election. Um, that you like that, but you don't think we're we're following in France's footsteps there. Absolutely. And again, okay. it's not just France. It's a number of other nations have taken similar measures. Okay. Coordinated. Uh, sort of, yeah. yeah. And, and, and a good example would be the Baltic nations that, you know, were the first to feel this kind of brunt of an effort that crossed between Russian cyber mm. hacks and influence operations. And they have a whole of society response that ranges from, you know, intelligence tracking of what's going on to digital literacy campaigns mm. to help their kids and citizens, you know, understand of the threats that are after them to Sweden literally just created an agency to better secure its elections that's going to look at everything from how do we secure the voting process to how do we keep foreign propaganda from influencing it. So the point is, it can be done if you're willing to do it. The problem in the United States right now is that for whatever reason, the incentives aren't there that we didn't react to a foreign attack with a shared, this will not stand. Instead, we took the attitude, well, it kind of helped my team, so I'm not that upset about it. Peter Singer is a senior fellow at the think tank New America. He's also the author of Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks. Peter Singer says that if our government did have the will to deter Russia from future attacks, here are a few things it might want to do. One, expand financial sanctions even more. Two, reveal hidden Russian assets, so places where oligarchs stash their cash. And three, target individual hackers so that, as Singer puts it, there'd be a raise in the cost of doing business. He notes that President Obama had plans to do some of those things. But in Singer's view, the plans came too late, and the Trump administration shelved them. We've got lots more on all of this at our website, from France's response to social media's response. That's at innovationhub.org. Most people think they're pretty great. They're more with it than lots of the people they know. They're a little bit better looking. They're more reasonable on most issues. They're more competent for sure. Hence this classic exchange from the TV show Seinfeld. Elaine, what percentage of people would you say are good looking? 25%. 
25 percent? Mm -hmm. No way. It's like four to six percent. It's a 20 to one shot. You're way off. Way off? Yeah. Have you been to the Motor Vehicle Bureau? It's a leper colony down there. So basically what you're saying is 95 percent of the population is undateable? Undateable! Then how are all these people getting together? Alcohol. Not surprisingly, in a world in which we are highly desirable, the smartest and most perceptive folks, they're the ones who are on to that fact. And they give us credit for being pretty great, even in a world awash in mediocrity. Paul Green has looked at how this plays out in the workplace and why it may have some major downsides. He's a doctoral candidate in management at Harvard Business School who has studied and written about how we cope with negative feedback. Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Kara. So uh, the big question, then, you've looked at how we deal with people who give us feedback. And how do we feel about working with people who maybe say, eh, this was not so great, this thing that you did? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's no surprise that negative feedback is not a fun thing. I mean, all of us have experienced it at some point. But I think the, the surprising insight here is that what my research shows is that not only is it not fun to get negative feedback or when somebody tells you, hey, we're not particularly pleased with, with, right. with your performance right. here – not only are we sort of frustrated and disappointed by it, we, we also sort of try to reshape our set of connections, the people that we're interacting with, our friends at work, so to speak, in order to sort of isolate ourselves from the folks who we think are going to give us that negative feedback and maybe cultivate a social network that's more flattering in the future. So we're reshaping our social network in order to, to sort of insulate ourselves from that. And have you looked at that in workplaces where we aim to surround ourselves essentially by the flatterers and kind of... You know, the person who gives us the tough feedback, they're not really your friend anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's exactly what we see in, in – uh, so we have a, this big, large data set with a bunch of employees from a, a reasonably sized uh, organization over time. And what we find is that over time, people are really, really good at, at creating these networks that, at least in their minds, are more likely to sort of be flattering in the future and less likely to be sort of disappointing or what we call disconfirming. Um, the, the, the sort of startling and particularly, I, I think – scary part of that, though, is that that contributes to lower performance in the future. So not as not only is it we're sort of shuffling our friends in order to create this more uh, favorable environment, but it's it's harming us in the future. So from your research, do you feel like to some degree, if people look around their work environments, we've all been aiming to do this, create this like circle of people around us who tell us you're pretty awesome yeah, to- and get away from the people who think, you're, you know, we're not so hot. Yeah, totally. And and actually, I think this is bigger than just a workplace thing, although, you know, I study management people and organizations, but I think this is a fundamental sort of human drive. I mean, think about it. How do you choose sure. your friends? You're not looking for friends who are making you feel bad about yourself, right? You're looking to surround yourself with people who sort of at some level uplift you and make you feel positive about yourself. So I think it's really tapping into a fundamental human drive. And I think that's the really somber point of the research is that we're, we're putting this thing in place in organizational settings that we sort of naively expect going to make people improve and cause them to get better at what they're doing. And what we're doing is we're just providing this sort of nudge and incentive that taps into something really fundamental about human beings. Did you find more uh, movement, more sort of reorganization within institutions than you thought? Because I'm sure there are people listening who are like, well, look, I don't really like the guy who sits next to me. Uh, My boss doesn't always give me positive feedback, but I don't know how to reorganize things so that I get away from my boss or, you know, that guy, like he was just assigned to sit there and he's not that nice. I mean, can it reorganize things even like that that seem intractable? 
Yeah, so I think that's maybe the beauty of the research. I think the research we conducted was in an organization where we were able to sort of get really formal relationship changes. We're actually able to capture a sense of how people's networks are actually changing. Practically speaking, that's not always possible, right? I mean, as you said, your manager gives you negative feedback you don't like. You can't just absolve yourself of your relationship with your manager. Right. But I think the the and this is something we see in some follow-on lab research that we did. I think it's not just about severing a relationship. Think about how you interact with people and the strain. So we think about relationship in, in the sort of heart of our re- research. We think about the relationship as being a binary thing. Either you have one or you don't. Mm-hmm. But relationships aren't like that. Connections with people at work aren't like that. You, you can think about being relatively close or relatively distant. And I think the practical truth is that even if you can't sever a relationship, if you can't just go surround yourself with people you really love, what you can do is change the nature of your interaction with people and change in a really profound and important way that whether it's a severing or not is really a powerful signal to the other person. Uh, what kind of criticism were the workers in your study getting that they chafed at and were like, I'm, <laughs> I'm done with this relationship with this person or I'm, I'm going to pull back certainly on my interactions? Yeah, so this is actually one of the really neat insights, I think, from the research. And it's a subtle insight, but I think it's really important. So we're looking at um, peer ratings, right? So think about a, a typical sort of evaluation process in an organization. Right. There's a number of dimensions that we've all said are important, leadership and creativity and whatever else are important in your organization. Mm-hmm. And you do a self-evaluation, you rate yourself five, six, four, three, whatever it is. And then there's your colleagues are providing similar sort of feedback on the same dimensions. And at some point you get that rating. So just to be clear, there there's some written, you know, feedback and all that sort of stuff. We don't look at that. All we're really looking at is um, my self-evaluation and how my colleagues are rating me. So I think this is an important point because I can rate myself, say, a five or five and a half or something like that. And you can rate me a 5.2. And in your mind, that's not really negative. You're not intending that as negative. In fact, from your perspective. Five out of what? What are we talking about Maybe six, seven. It doesn't really matter. But the the point is, is that in your mind, thinking about all the people that you're reviewing, that's great. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, That's somewhere middle of the road or upper middle of the road. But I'm filtering what you're telling me through my self-evaluation. And the minute that my peer's evaluation crosses my self-evaluation, that is, it's lower, is the minute that I start perceiving that as negative. And I think that's the really powerful thing is that we sort of plant a flag on the ground when we, when we sort of I, you know, come up with our self-evaluation. We say, okay, I think that on a scale of one to seven, I'm a five when it comes to leadership. And I feel pretty strongly about that. And anybody who sort of gets below you on the five and is telling you, well, four and a half, actually, Paul, that's when subtly things change for you. And that's when you start to interpret it as negative, right? And so that's when we see the action happening. I feel like we could almost translate that when we were talking about numbers. There's so much actually in common between um, evaluating people at work on leadership or whatever and evaluating people on looks. You know, when people believe on a scale of one to ten, there's something and then you tell them they're not. It it is challenging the perception of like who they are and trying to shatter that. And they don't want that. You know, like people are resistant to that. Exactly. That's exactly right. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Paul Green, a doctoral candidate in management at Harvard Business School. He's the co-author of a recent study about critical feedback. Okay, so many companies, I would assume the vast majority of them, have yearly evaluations in which exactly what we're talking about happens. People rate themselves with numbers. There's also usually written parts. Um, There's peer evaluations. The boss evaluates you. Are you saying not a good idea? What, what do you think of those? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, you know, I work with a lot of companies in my research. And one of the companies I was working with, I was a, sort of a, you know, outlining this research to them. And, and the leadership was sitting around the table and said, well, Paul, 
I guess we need to go sort of cancel all of our evaluation and developmental programs. And, and I think that's not exactly the message here. Although there's a pretty important insight here. I've talked to lots of people about their experiences with these feedback systems. And you're right, they're ubiquitous. Almost every organization of any reasonable size has something like this. But I've never met a person that really enjoys it. I haven't met a lot of people that actually feel like it sort of leads in some meaningful way to their developmental growth. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing, the one really important insight, and this is where it sort of gets fluffy and squishy, but the one important insight is that we, what we have found in some of our follow-on research to this is that when we create opportunities for the recipient of negative feedback, prior to receiving the negative feedback, to sort of self-affirm and sort of validate who they are, even just within themselves, not socially validated, not Kara telling me, Paul, you're wonderful. This mm-hmm. is Paul just sort of reflecting on who he is, what he values, that it really mutes this effect. It almost and goes away. And this is away. before you go into here. Yeah, exactly. And you're just telling yourself. That's right. So, so imagine okay. if we can sort of take that insight and create organization environments. There's, there's important insight here. I'm, I'm married. And I've been married for a long time, and I can tell you there have been many times where I've got disconfirming feedback from my wife. You know, I, think, I think I'm doing wonderfully, and my wife says, actually, Paul, sure. you're not. You're not right. that great at all. <laughs> but there's never been a period in, in my marriage ever where I've said, you know what? Maybe I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Find somebody who gives you exactly. more positive I, I don't feedback. Find, so, so the question is, what is it in that type of relationship that is absent in this employee relationship, right. right? So when you think about your colleagues at work, I think the big thing that's missing is there's no sense at all that this disconfirming or negative feedback is overlaid over an, a relationship that is overall an affirming relationship. So think about that. In your marital relationships or your romantic relationships with, with others or even close friendships, you can get that disconfirming feedback and it still hurts. It doesn't make you feel good about yourself and it's still threatening. But it's pretty easy to quickly retreat to thinking about the relationship as a whole. It's mm-hmm. pretty easy. It's much easier to interpret that as in service of sustaining and maintaining this relationship. And it's a lot harder to delude yourself into thinking, well, this person just doesn't like me or, or is not in, interested in what I'm doing. And so I think one of the big takeaways is that that maybe the naivete comes in when we're just laying this system in and imagining that the fundamentals of the relationships between the people who are doing the giving and receiving the feedback don't matter. So are you saying that kind of like a marriage, the rest of the year, that's not the day that you go in to meet with somebody and they say you're a 4.5 or whatever, that they should be telling you or not telling you, but somehow conveying to you, you matter, you're a really important part of this team. So that when they say, I really think you could do this a little bit better, you say, oh, gee, that's rough, but I know they really like me, so maybe I, I could just work on this a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, at the very minimum, it mutes the tendency to sort of sever the relationship, if for no other reason, because you, over the period of time leading up to that, have sort of started to cultivate some mm-hmm. sense of value in the relationship itself, right? So part of this is that they're sort of propping you up in advance, but part of it, too, is that you start to see the relationship as valuable. You're not necessarily inclined to want to sever it because the relationship matters to you. You know... I used to teach English, and I would uh, I would correct papers. And I remember somebody saying to me once, I don't remember who it was, but I remember them saying, when you write your comment at the end of the paper, start with a uh, positive thing, and that way the person will be more receptive to all the ne- negativity that's about to come their way. Uh, so I, I kind of tried to follow that model. If somebody is hearing this and they're thinking, so what you're saying is combine the positive with the negative, don't just say hey, Paul, you need to improve in areas A, B, and C. Okay, thank you so much. See you next year. Is that good enough to do a little like positivity, negativity sandwich there? Yeah, no. So actually that I would say that that's exactly, that is not at all what I'm, what I'm okay. suggesting. So, so uh, 
there's a, there's a term, there's a sort of feedback sandwich is the polite term, but there's a more colloquial term that incorporates a, a word that I'm not going to say on the okay. air. Uh, but, but it's sort of this idea of you've got something really nasty you want to say, and you know that it's going to be hurtful and not fun. So you sort of sandwich it between some really flowery, positive stuff. And so, so first of all, I'm not talking about saying nice things and burying the, the not-so-fun thing in the mm-hmm. middle. In fact, I actually think it's critically important that we don't bury the lead, so to speak. I think we have to get the message across that we need to get across. And so don't pollute that or convolute that with a bunch of other stuff. I think that's the worst thing you could do. And, and a big reason why is because we're great at finding the positive and sort of muting ourselves to the sort of negative signals. So, so you're sending mixed signals. The recipient is going to selectively pull the, the, the elements that they want to hear and sort of blind themselves to the elements they don't want to hear. Has there ever been a time when you were given negative feedback by somebody and maybe sought to not hang out with them as much? Like it could be in a work environment or whatever. Yeah, totally. In fact, very early in my career, prior to uh, my life in research, I was in uh, in the agribusiness industry in California. My manager it was sort of the end of the year period, and, and I was looking for a particular compensation increase. My manager set me down and said, Paul, you're not nearly as good as you think you are. And, and you can't <laughs> get any more disconfirming than painful. that. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I, I sort of sat there quietly, nodding my head, and walked out of the room, and I started crying. It was just, it, would, it broke my heart. And my, my, I, re, I vividly remember I went home and I told my wife, I'm going to start looking for a new job. Hmm. And for probably a week, I didn't, I, I think maybe two days in it going to work, I just sort of didn't wow. want to hang out with them, didn't want to talk. Finally, my wife said, you know what, this is stupid. Um, this, is that really, is that really how you're going to respond to this? I mean, at some level, there's some truth to what he was saying. You're a little bit naive and blind. So she was wonderful in that sense. But yeah, definitely. And I think that's sort of the ultimate extreme, right, is thinking about shifting jobs. So there's this uh, thing that people talk about all the time. I don't know where it comes from, but it strikes me as true that people don't leave jobs. They leave the people they're working with. They leave their managers. They leave the, the leaders of the organizations. And so, uh, and I think this is, this is sort of indicative of that, right? So you get this disconfirming feedback and it's harsh disconfirming feedback. And I was experienced as harsh and my mind immediately went to, I I need to find a different place to work. Hmm. Paul Green is a co-author of a recent study on how we deal with negative feedback. He's also a doctoral candidate in management at Harvard Business School. Paul, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. We'll have the article that explains Paul Green's study up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And while you're there, you can leave us a comment If it does happen to be negative, we're going to try really hard not to take it personally. There are a lot of people who will tell you that Facebook affects their lives in some way, maybe good, maybe bad. But almost no one will tell you a story like Franklin Four. Facebook changed Four's life, but it wasn't because of the time he was spending on it. It was because of a guy named Chris. When I first met him, he was an enormously appealing figure. He he was smart, curious. He seemed uh, very literary in his inclinations. That's Four talking about a person who, once upon a time, was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate in college. Chris Hughes co-founded Facebook. He became a character in the movie The Social Network, and he made hundreds of millions of dollars off his investment in the company. After Facebook, he'd gone to run Obama's social media during the 2008 campaign, and he was looking for a sense of purpose. And so he was he was uh, kicking the tires of various media properties, and the New Republic happened to be the one that was for sale. 
So Hughes started learning more and more about this magazine that Four had been an editor of, The New Republic. It's a small publication with lofty ideals and a list of past writers that includes Ralph Ellison and Virginia Woolf. But the story of what happened to it tells us a lot about the strange and maybe worrisome entanglement of tech and journalism everywhere. So back to 2012, when Hughes was kicking the tires on the New Republic, and Four, who is the magazine's former editor, saw the state of journalism as a complete mess. Local newspapers started to drop like flies. Newsrooms everywhere were cut. And uh, you had the flourishing of a new sort of media that was chasing clicks. And so when I came back to the New Republic in 2012, I mean, there was this sense that journalism was both squandering its dignity, pursuing a model that was not good for itself or for the society at large. And to top it all off, it was hard to see how it was going to turn around its financial fortunes. Then a savior. Maybe journalism as a whole was in trouble, but all of a sudden this tiny little magazine felt golden. We were struggling to find our footing in this new media age. And here was a co-founder of Facebook, of social media, who said, look, I have deep pockets. I'm committed to your type of journalism, and I can help you find a way to bridge your history into this new era. Four once again became editor of The New Republic, and things were great. He was hiring people. He was commissioning ambitious writing. He had money, or at least someone had money. But reality was reality, as Four notes in his book, World Without Mine, the existential threat of big tech. No miracles happened. The New Republic did not become the next Facebook or the next BuzzFeed. And reality came crashing down. And so there became a moment where Chris said, you know what? I'm not prepared to spend this kind of money forever and ever. We need to produce results. What happened then is, to me, what really deserves attention, because it ceases to be about a magazine editor and the co-founder of Facebook, and it becomes a story about what we consume. And it's pretty important to know what's in your diet. So one of the things that this new digital age has introduced to journalism is data, that we have analytics that measure our readers all the time. Okay. Um, And there's one device in particular called Chartbeat. It's a tool. I had it on my phone. I had it on my desktop. And it was like an odometer in a car that you could – it was with this needle that was showing you how popular any given story was at any given moment. Because remember, each additional click that you produce for a story is incremental revenue for your organization. And since I I was – I was in an environment where we, we felt like we really needed to turn around our business in, in fairly short order. Uh, you know, the, the question was, how could we get clicks? And so uh, I would just I would wake up in the morning and I would turn to Chartbeat and I would see how we, w- we were performing as I was waking up. And then I would do the same thing as I got a cup of coffee and I'd be sitting at, at my desk talking to somebody, but really staring at this, uh, this popularity <laughs> odometer, right. watching it sputter. And it's kind of like being like, at a party and you're kind of always looking over their shoulder to see if like a totally, better person <laughs> totally, has come in the totally, room. Totally. Totally. But for me, it was like, I was judged. My self-esteem was kind of, I felt like mm-hmm. was riding on, on the popularity of our stories at any given moment. And what this chart beat suggested was that, um, if a story wasn't doing well on the web, if it wasn't popular enough, there was some way to fix it. 
And so you could write a better headline. And Mm -hmm. one thing that journalism is obsessed with right now is testing headlines, that they have these tools that allow them to test dozens and dozens of headlines simultaneously to see what's going to be the one most likely to grab your attention or you change Mm -hmm. the photo or, Mm -hmm. you know, you even change the substance of the argument. I'm sorry to say that that happens, Mm. that happens constantly. And, you know, some of that's just with the headline and the way that it's presented, that if you make something more sensationalistic, it's more likely to grab people's attention. Hmm. I want to follow up on that. I wonder, I mean, you know, I am a consumer of newspapers and magazines, mostly online. Not, I, I don't get most of them, you know, the paper copy. Um, do you think in every, like, I just wonder how much this is happening. In every newsroom, everywhere people are customizing what uh, is on their website to what people are clicking on, whether that's what's important or what's not. I mean, just give me a sense of how pervasive this is. It is pervasive. And and that's not to say that journalism is succumbing to it in its entirety. And uh, there's I'm not I don't want to say that the, the profession is uh, is completely rotten because it's far from completely rotten. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this mindset has wormed its way into the profession. In fact, you know, one thing that I can say in the profession's favor is that uh, that there is some increasing resistance that journalism, I think, understands that it became far too dependent on Facebook, that Facebook was supplying it with far too much traffic and that journalism was kind of uh, heeding Facebook's every beck and call hmm. and that over the long run, um, journalism is going to fail spectacularly if it does that. And so, uh, you know, slowly but surely, I think you see newsrooms bravely starting to revolt against Facebook. Hmm. Do you think that... Uh readers have any sense that like headlines are tested? I mean, you talk about headlines being tested 20 times, like different iterations of a headline to see what gets you to click on it. Like, do you think readers know that? No, they have no idea. Uh, and, And this is just the way in which journalism reflects the broader online environment, which is where you're constantly being nudged. You're constantly being tested. Uh, all this data that's being amassed on you all the time is being leveraged to try to influence your choices. And so journalism is no different than shopping for socks or um, it's no different than uh, the way in which Facebook itself is constantly trying to manipulate readers to keep them as engaged for as long as possible. Hmm. You know, I wonder... um... If you've seen or how much sort of hand-wringing you think there is among editors who, let's say, you know, uh, this is just a hypothetical, but they put out a story, let's say, on on aid to Pakistan and cutbacks in aid to Pakistan, and it's, they think it's really important, has a lot of implications, and so on. Um, but, but let's just say people are not that interested. Versus a story you talk about is... Clearly, demonstrably, people are interested. The story of Cecil the Lion, right? Uh, right, which just caught fire was, you know, a really um, magnetic story. Like, if you're an editor and you're looking at a story you think will impact hundreds of millions of people versus the story of Cecil the Lion, important perhaps, but probably not of the same magnitude. What do you? I, how do you think about this? And and the Cecil the Lion, let's say, is 100 times more popular. Right. Well, 
what you're describing is the way in which Facebook um, is kind of leading journalism into this new age of conformism. That the most crucial term in this age is trending. That everybody is trying to latch on to a subject as it's in the process of becoming ubiquitous, in the process of becoming popular, because everybody wants to scrape traffic over from it. And Mm -hmm. so in terms of the investments that journalism is making in a very, very macro level, over the course of the last couple of years, all the investments have been really slated towards, geared towards the the Facebook friendly content. Hmm. So I I gotta ask you about this. You I mean we, we we were talking with the New Republic about sort of a marriage of old journalism and tech, and obviously the takeover Jeff Bezos's acquisition of the Post is this like marriage of you know new tech and old journalism. Um, but he's also got an editor, uh, you know Marty Baron, who used to be the editor at the Boston Globe, who is kind of an old school editor. A giant. A giant. And and people, you know, you could argue that this sort of marriage has worked very well for The Post. I don't know. Do you think this is a model? Yeah. Well, I think it has worked for The Post okay. for the time being. Um, I think that uh, it, and it, and it may and it may very well be a model, but I think it's not a great model for a couple reasons. One is I just think it reflects a way in which power is increasingly concentrated in this com- in this country, I mean, Amazon is the largest uh, web services company. It's a massive movie studio. It owns the Washington Post, and and you know, and so on and so on. And so, ultimately, I think you know the question is whether it's healthy for democracy to have a small handful of people, increasingly in the tech industry, controlling broad swaths of media and. Um, when when the subject is Donald Trump and Be- Bezos is willing to take an adversarial stance to the administration, it works out great. But what happens when the subject becomes Amazon? Because Amazon is, you know, one of the five most essential subjects in American life, just given its its scale and that it's involved in questions about the future of the workplace, about automation, about jobs, about all these things. And, you know, if if the Washington Post is going to be one of three national newspapers, is it going to simply recuse itself from covering those questions? And how do you feel now when you kind of look out with a little more distance? I mean, you write for The Atlantic. But how do you feel now when you think about 10, 15, 20 years in the future and where journalism is heading? What do you worry about? What do you think is has, you know, maybe po- is mo- maybe positive? Right. So on the negative side of the ledger, I think we can't overstate the disappearance of uh, local, local newspapers yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and local news and the way in which this crucial, crucial watchdog against corruption has basically disappeared. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of the changes over the course of the next decade, I think, will be painful. Mm-hmm. It's easy to imagine that The New York Times or The Washington Post or, God forbid, NPR will contract some over the course of the decade. And we just got to hope that in the course of managing this next phase of the transition, that the transition happens in a prudent, shrewd sort of way where the core mission of these organizations is, uh, is maintained. 
Franklin Four is a former editor at The New Republic. He is now a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's author of the book World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Franklin, thanks so much. Thank you. And an epilogue to all of this. Chris Hughes ultimately brought in a CEO who, as Hughes says in a new book, clashed continually with Four. The CEO just did not want Four to be editor anymore. And when Four figured that out, he resigned in a move that spurred many others on the staff to resign too. Hughes notes that he ultimately spent $25 million to keep the New Republic afloat, but that, quote, in retrospect, my decision to hold on to the dream of a break-even New Republic was a mistake. He sold the magazine in 2016, and he's written a new book, which covers this episode of his life, among other things. It's called Fair Shot. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.